welcome to the 34th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I am part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Ken Serrett from the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Ken, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you did your graduate work on yeast genetics with Dr. Fred Sherman in the Department of Radiation Biology and Biophysics at the University of Rochester from 1977 to 82. And then your postdoctoral work on steroid hormone regulation with Dr. Keith Yamamoto in the Department of Biochemistry and Biophysics from 82 to 85 at the University of California in San Francisco. Then from 1986 to 1999, you were then at the, in the biochemistry section and then in the Department of Molecular Biology, Cell Biology and Biochemistry at Brown University Medical School, where you attained the rank of professor. Then from 1999 to 2009, you were a senior member and leader of the Cell and Developmental Biology Program at the Fox Chase Cancer Center, where you held the W.W. Smith Chair in Cancer Research. You also initiated the epigenetics and progenitor cells program at Fox Chase. And then you moved to UPenn in 2009, where you served as associate professor of the Institute for Reg Regenerative Medicine and co-director of the epigenetics program until 2014. And you are still at UPenn today. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place? And then uh, moving on, pursuing a career in science. Well, thank you very much, Mason. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your group. Um, it's interesting. I had kind of a wayward career. I was good as a high school student. And then my first two years of college, I wasn't so good. And I took a year off of college. And then I went back to school. And at first, I was interested in animal behavior and took various courses in animal behavior. And I thought I would work for, you know, National Geographic, traveling the world, taking pictures of animals in exotic places. And uh, I happened to take a biochemistry class, and that was it. It changed my life. I said, wow, this is really cool. You know, the intersection between life and chemistry, I thought, was just fascinating. And so um, <clears throat> one thing led to another. I went to graduate school and uh, continued on that path. It, it's interesting that so many uh, young scientists today are encouraged to develop a career plan And back then I had no career plan. I just liked working in the lab. I liked biochemistry. Then I liked working in the lab doing yeast genetics. And I just kept working in the lab, whatever next step would allow that. And here I am today. <laughs> so coming to your science, which centers around pioneer transcription factors and their role in chromatin structure in development. Um, I want to go back to your early days, specifically in 1993. You were at Brown University and in 1993 and 1996, you published uh, two papers where characterized the transcription factor that was then known as HNF3 and its role in hepatic specification. So I guess this was the first time when you went into chromatin uh, from your um, uh, yeah, postdoc and, and uh, PhD work, which I just described. Um, so what was your plan and your roadmap at that time? And what were the results of those early papers? Well, thanks very much. <clears throat> um, it's an interesting example uh, in, in my scientific life where the most interesting results were not the ones you were looking for. And to some extent, that adds more credibility to them. So I was interested in uh, tissue-specific transcription factors because I thought that was a key to understanding cell type control in the mid-1980s when I started my lab. Uh, 
And the, um, so we did, you know, some very straightforward things. We studied a liver specific gene, the albumin gene as a model, because the liver is big. You could get a lot of liver out of a mouse and do a lot of stuff with it. And uh, we made uh, extracts of proteins and did uh, DNA's footprinting experiments to map uh, what transcription factor <clears throat> sites were bound in liver nuclear extracts compared to extracts from other tissues and had identified tissue-specific footprints. And then we went into uh, mouse embryos at the same time my lab was doing developmental biology. And we worked out conditions first in adult liver and then in mouse embryos to do what's called in vivo footprinting. So this is way before chromatin immunoprecipitation, which you could uh, map where binding sites on DNA were occupied. And I thought chromatin was interesting. I had done some work on that as a postdoc, but I didn't think it would be truly integral to my work until the following. So we did, we, we asked a simple question, which transcription factors are on the albumin enhancer first in embryonic development? So we had adult liver, we got fetal liver, we got embryonic liver bud. And then we thought the endoderm, which is the progenitor cells of the liver, the endoderm germ layer, we figured out how to do in vivo footprinting and endoderm. And we thought, oh, the endoderm was going to be a negative control. Nothing would be bound to the enhancer and endoderm because the liver gene is silent. And we could show that we could physically isolate the endoderm, show by a very sensitive assay that the albumin gene was silent and that it could be induced in the endoderm uh, by various developmental signals. So we did the in vivo footprinting. And so in adult liver, fetal liver, liver bud, a whole bunch of transcription factor binding sites were occupied on the albumin enhancer. But in the endoderm, which we thought would be clear, in fact, two binding sites were occupied. One for uh, the transcription factor HNF3, now known as FOXA, and the other for GATA factors and GATA4 and 6. So this kind of changed my head and uh, about the whole topic. And, and I realized that, well, the, the albumin gene is silent then, it presumably is in chromatin. It's not opened up. Uh, that was an assumption, of course. And uh, so I assumed that, that those factors might actually be able to specifically bind to chromatinized genes, if you will, uh, in a 1993 or four perspective of things. <clears throat> so um, at the time, I, I was... Uh, um, at Brown University, and I was able to take sabbaticals, and I highly recommend sabbaticals. Being an academic, it's just a, a rare thing to be able to do. So <clears throat> at the time, I went to Carl Wu's lab at the NIH and learned how to do his chromatin reconstitution, and I went to Bob Kingston's lab at uh, Mass General at Harvard Medical School and learned how to do mononucleosome reconstitution, and I brought those technologies to my lab and then we started getting into the protein purification business and purified recombinant proteins. And uh, long story short, found that the FOXA factor, then known as HNF3, was able to bind its target sites on a recombinant nucleosome. Uh, GATA4 was poor at it, but it could be helped by FOX. And other liver factors that we tested that would bind the enhancer eventually when you turned on the gene, when the gene became active, uh, were not able to bind the nucleosome. And so that was kind of the genesis of the pioneer factor hypothesis that, that um, certain factors had the intrinsic biochemical capability independent of other factors in chromatin, independent of nucleosome remodelers and what have you, to target sites on nucleosomes and other factors did not. And coincidentally, those two factors that could do that uh, 
were the first to bind the gene. And um, so uh, then there was some really nice genetics work that was done um, eventually in Klaus Kessner's lab showing that FOXA factors are essential for uh, hepatic induction and then work in zebrafish showing that the GATA factors are essential for hepatic induction. And so that kind of sewed it all together. Uh, we then later um, developed more complex templates, nucleosome arrays. That was a big leap for my lab. And, and once again, it was an example of an unexpected result uh, giving you the most insight. So Lisa Cirillo was a postdoc in my lab at the time. And I should mention that um, Pascal Bossard did the amazing in vivo footprinting that I described earlier, along with Rosanna Gualdi. At any rate, um, so with Lisa, who had done the mononucleosome binding uh, of the FOXA factors and the other factors, uh, we made nucleosome arrays. So this is a 13x array of nucleosomes. So it's on like a 2.7 KB fragment of DNA. And it has repeat elements of the 5S gene that Bob Simpson in the mid 80s had shown nicely positions nucleosomes. And so you could position an array of nucleosomes and put your enhancer right in the middle of it. And it would sort of force, if you will, a nucleosome to position on your um, albumin enhancer sequence in this case. So um, we assemble the nucleosomes and you, you treat them with DNA or other enzymes and you look at cleavage and you see cleavage between the nucleosomes. And then we added purified FOXA factor and we saw no change at all. Uh, we could provide evidence to ourselves that it was indeed binding the arrays, but we didn't see any change in chromatin structure. So once again, you know, a negative result that you, <laughs> you're not sure of. But then we thought more deeply about it, and we realized, well, in silent chromatin in vivo, it's probably going to have linker histone and perhaps other uh, proteins that are further so compacting the chromatin. So you did not put H1 into the mix, so just like the core histones? Right, the first experiments were just core histones. But then, as you anticipated, the next experiments, we added linker histones after assembling the recombinant proteins. And you know, we had done electron microscopy, all kinds of controls to make sure we were making good chromatin. So finally, we added um, uh, linker histones, and then, and that showed it made it completely DNAs resistant over the range that we were using the range that would give beautiful ladders of nucleosomes on, um, on the extended arrays. And then when we added FOXA, lo and behold, it generated a DNA hypersensitive site and a restriction enzyme hypersensitive site right on and around the nucleosome to which it would bind. And that activity was dependent upon binding sites for FOXA on the sequence. So it was just one of those, oh my God, moments where we were literally able to reconstitute the initial opening of chromatin just by a purified transcription factor. And uh, so that was a, a very exciting, and that, that was the, I'd been talking about pioneer factors at conferences and stuff, and finally put the term pioneer factor in our paper describing this ability to open up chromatin uh, alone in a molecular cell paper in 2002. And uh, so that's kind of how it, the genesis of this whole area for me. So what was the difference here between like not having H1 there and having H1 there? Because is then the chromatin different and do binding sites get exposed to for FOXA or is it necessary for FOXA to have like H1 there that it can somehow replace it? Or what is, what do you think is the deal here? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. 
So in the time since, we've come to appreciate a bunch of properties of Fox A uh, that distinguish it further from other factors. And the first is that it has a fairly strong nonspecific nucleosome binding activity. So it can scan across the chromatin. And we have some experiments that we haven't yet published where we put a, um, a, a chemical tag, if you will, on Fox that allows it to cleave uh, where the Fox protein binds directly. And you can show that on the extended arrays, it's cleaving all across the arrays as it's scanning for its binding site. Uh, you can get some enrichment underneath its binding site, but on the compacted arrays, you really only get cleavage right where there's um, it's, it's binding. And I, that doesn't answer your question adequately, I understand. But the main point is that we think that uh, somehow the residence time of the factor in chromatin is more stable in the compacted environment. This leads me to the following hypothesis, which we've never published and I'm sharing with you all now. And that is one of the things we've observed is that Fox A and GATA both bind uh, at higher affinity or lower nanomolar KD to um, increasingly complex chromatin. So mononucleosomes versus dinucleosomes versus nucleosome arrays. Uh, with the arrays, it's binding better. In other words, lower amounts of protein are required to uh, occupy or saturate its binding site. And so to answer your question, what I think is happening is these transcription factors have evolved secondary sites on their surfaces, either of the DNA binding domain or what have you, that's actually interacting with other components of chromatin in the compacted state. And so what I think Fox is doing is the more compacted the chromatin, the more you're satisfying these other sites on the protein that are um, able to interact. And in fact, we just published a paper in Nature Genetics this past year mapping a histone contact site or histone contact sites, plural, between FOXA1 and FOXA2 and uh, the nucleosome. And we showed that at least one of those binding sites is essential for FOX to create that open state in chromatin. So this was actually one of my last questions and <laughs> that I prepared, but uh, coming back to, to the early 2000s, um, uh, you mentioned that uh, HNF3 and FOXA are the synonyms for the same uh, thing. Um, how did it evolve that it has two names? I mean, you, you, uh, First, you, you had like HNF3 and then, then FOXA comes, comes in. How did that happen? Well, quite a few of us were looking at the same transcription factor in the mid-late mid 1980s that binds a TGTTT sequence or consensus. Uh, a, a number of labs were hot on the trail of that factor. And uh, I had a you know, very young lab. I had one postdoc, several grad students, and a technician and me. I was working in the lab. And Jim Darnell's lab, who was this huge lab working on liver at the time, um, Rob Costa and, and others in his lab uh, managed to get the cDNA for H hepatic nuclear factor three. At the time, it was only known as, because it was isolated from liver, so it was called hepatic. It was the third one pulled out. And I must say, uh, Rob and Jim were phenomenal in recognizing my early state and sharing the cDNA with me uh, very early on. I, I give them enormous credit for that. But at any rate, it was called HNF3 because it was pulled out of liver, hepatic nuclear factor three. And then uh, a number of years later, when it became clear that the family was very large, there were multiple isoforms of HNF3 
but there's many others like it that were not quite as related. Uh, Klaus Kestner's and other, others led a, um, a team to rename the class of factors. And so they were called uh, forkhead box factors or fox to, run, to be similar to hawks with Forkhead being the uh, Drosophila home of the Pomolog that was originally cloned in Herbert Yockley's lab as important for fly gut development. So here you have a factor important for fly gut development to human and mouse gut development. It's highly conserved. And then Eric Davidson uh, showed that the same factor controls endoderm differentiation in starfish and sea urchins. So the, the FOXA, HNF3, if you will, factor has been conserved in endoderm differentiation for half a billion years of evolution. So it's, it's pretty locked in there as an essential factor. So in, in, in the light, uh, late 2000, uh, zero years, so in 2009, you look, compared the mobility of FOXA to other transcription factors. Um, you already said that um, FOXA is attracted to complex chromatin structures, heterochromatin areas, but how does the mobility of pioneer transcription factor compare to a normal transcription factor? Is it like a gradual thing or is it like you have uh, the pioneer transcription factors here and the other ones right there, there's a big gap in mobility? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, at first, because Fox had much lower mobility than many other factors in, in live cell chromatin. This is doing a GFP tag and experiment called fluorescence recovery after photobleaching. Now that being said, there's, there's a lot of details in interpreting those data, but uh, we had alleles of FOXA that were mutant for either specific or non-specific DNA binding and, and could really dissect out what was important. And what we learned was rather surprising. Uh, at the time, and I think to this day, uh, many people think that specific site binding is the primary determinant of mobility in chromatin. And in fact, what we have found is that you can mutate site-specific binding by changing two amino acids in the DNA binding domain that contact the major groove and um, still have low mobility of the FOX factors. But if you mutate two amino acids that affect binding to the phosphodiester backbone of DNA, and thus decrease non-specific binding, you can uh, greatly increase the mobility of the factor. And, and those phenotypes correlated perfectly with the ability of the factor to bind nucleosomes. In other words, that the non-specific DNA uh, binding activity correlated with non-specific nucleosome binding. So long story short, what we think is that the low mobility is due to Fox kind of binding on, off, on, off, on, off across the nucleosomal landscape and um, thereby scanning the chromatin, if you will, whereas other factors such as CMYK at the time uh, had a much higher mobility, which we took to mean that it would access open regions of chromatin, then come off and diffuse through the nucleoplasm, then land somewhere else instead of this close on, off scanning. And more recently, uh, Jonathan Lerner in my lab published a a really nice single molecule tracking uh, paper in molecular cell in 2020, where uh, John showed that in fact, there is a range, as you were suggesting, it's not absolutely discrete by testing about 10 different transcription factors. And FOXA uh, and SOX2, which are clearly pioneer factors, um, had the lowest mobility 
by the single molecule tracking. So instead of looking at residence time, which a lot of people have done, we've actually looked at the tracking uh, path length and uh, orientation of the path length. And that shows that Fox and Sox um, move around in the most compacted domains of the nucleus, whereas many other transcription factors are only in the more open domains. And then there's a gradient in between there with other pioneers uh, more or less following the path of, uh, or the characteristics of Fox and Sox. So to summarize, and, and I should also say, Juicy Taipale has done an amazingly, really nice job characterizing transcription factors for their ability to bind nucleosomes. And once again, he sees a range of binding activities, sees many different ways factors combine nucleosomes near the diet axis of the nucleosome, off the diet axis, uh, across two gyres of DNA, and then near the entry point of the nucleosome. And so there's, there's really uh, discrete ways and a range of ways that transcription factors combine nucleosomes. That being said, many factors can't bind nucleosomes. And we think that that distinction underlies um, coming back to genetics and biology, uh, how cell fate changes are initiated. So, yeah, coming to a science paper in 2011, um, you looked at pre-patterns of chromatin and uh, how histone modifiers uh, can change the fate decision or fate choice uh, for liver and pancreas, uh, indicating that um, silent genes can be maybe epigenetically marked uh, to be potentially activated. Um, which pattern did you find there? Yeah, so that was done at a time where we didn't, we weren't using seek methods. Um, we were just taking uh, about a half a dozen candidate sites at liver and pancreas specific genes, and doing a low cell number chip in um, chromatin IP in undifferentiated endoderm, and then nascent pancreatic cells and nascent hepatic cells. And uh, basically what we saw, again, we really didn't expect that, is quite different patterns of histone marks at the pancreas genes, in pancreas regulatory elements in undifferentiated endoderm from liver uh, regulatory elements in undifferentiated endoderm. And the sample number was small in terms of number of sites we we're looking at. But uh, we suggested that there was some sort of pre-pattern in that the, the liver genes were set like this and the pancreas genes were set like that. And we showed using a combination of genetics in, in embryos as well as uh, using inhibitors of pathways in uh, embryo endoderm explants that the uh, BMP pathway going through SMAD4 Uh, was critical for inducing the, end, the liver pathway and suppressing the pancreas initially. And then the pancreas, which we had previously suggested was a default uh, when the, there was an absence of BNP and FGF there, um, would, would uh, come on in the pancreas and not on in the liver. And so it was, it was more of a descriptive thing. Now you might ask, how do those marks get there? And, and I can't yet tell you other than to say that since we know that those regulatory elements indeed are marked by pioneer factors, at least, in the undifferentiated endoderm. Presumably, there's some code by which those factors are recruiting um, histone-modifying enzymes to one particular site versus another. Uh, in other words, I still think that the, the key decision-making is driven by the transcription factors, but those transcription factors are essentially 
um, they're adapter proteins. You know, they find a region of DNA and then they recruit all kinds of other stuff to do work. And so um, that's kind of our, our take uh, on that part. And I, I should also say that we had done genetics in that paper to knock out a histone acetyltransferase and uh, the PRC2 uh, complex in the endoderm. And um, you could reduce, you could modulate the extent to which you made liver or pancreas cells, but you didn't completely change the fate. And so that's why we, we uh, in that paper, we concluded that the epigenetic components were modulatory, but prior genetic work, as I had mentioned, showed that the transcription factors really are fate determining uh, and limiting factors. So you mentioned that they sit there, that they bind to regions, and then you went on to characterize those regions binding motifs and also compare them to other pioneering transcription factors like the Yamanaka factors. So what determines where they sit? Is it DNA sequence? Is it chromatin context? Um, what did you find there? Right. That's a really good question. And I get that asked that a lot. If they're pioneer factors, why don't they bind the same sequences in all cells? Well, it's absolutely clear that they don't bind stably to the same sequences in all cells. And in 2012, we published a paper in Cell where we clearly showed that while um, uh, SOX, OCT, and KLF4 of the Yamanaka factors could de novo target regions of the genome that did not have a pre-existing active chromatin mark or were not opened by DNAs, they also were prevented from targeting many sites that were um, embedded in chromatin that was marked by histone H3 lysine 9 trimethylation. And so uh, in the time since, what's been clear as more and more people have been looking at early developmental factors and where they first bind in chromatin, that different pioneers actually seem to be able to target different kinds of heterochromatin. So um, PAX7 can target some extent of histone H3 lysine nine trimethylation uh, other factors can target uh, k27 trimethyl uh, polycomb bound sites and so forth so uh, we actually now think that there's some kind of code by which the different uh, fundamental regulators pioneer type factors that combine nucleosomes indeed can differentially target uh, different forms of heterochromatin and i have a uh, couple people in my lab very directly uh, trying to sort this out. So on the other hand, there was a really interesting experiment done uh, by Alex Meissner's lab where they were looking at where FOXA factors and, and other factors first target the genome when they're induced in human fibroblast cells and compared to other cells. And like everyone else, if you call peaks, you see that there's, uh, um, they're binding to different sites and different cells with some degree of overlap. But instead of calling peaks, he displayed the signals in a heat map so you could see what the primary data looked like. And in fact, there was, there was a, a, a hint of binding at all of the FOX sites in all of the cells in any cell that you looked at. It's just that you made strong peaks in different particular cells depending upon which sites Fox uh, collaborated with or cooperated with. So um, we're, we're doing experiments now to more directly try to assess 
how these touchdown scanning events uh, might lead to a cooperative binding event and stable binding uh, with other factors. Yeah, this will be interesting to see. So we have focused on development, uh, but uh, you also published a paper on their role in mitosis. So bookmarking sites where transcription needs to be initiated right after cell division. Um, how does this mechanism work uh, with transcription factors being involved in this process? Right. Um, so uh, that's kind of interesting. So, you know, when we started doing those experiments, which was over 10 years ago, There wasn't much known about how transcription factors bind in uh, mitotic chromatin. To remind the audience, <clears throat> in mitosis, you have nuclear envelope breakdown. So uh, the, uh, you know, and, and the other thing is there's obvious uh, chromatin compaction. And uh, there's some artifacts associated with uh, formaldehyde fixation and so forth. So we had used Uh, GFP tagging of FOXA and, and four or five other liver transcription factors to ask in a liver cell which factors remain bound to the mitotic chromatin. And we use linker histone as a control because linker histone is, com is completely bound in mitotic chromatin, linker histone, H1, GFP, let's say. And uh, we found that FOXA, in fact, GFP, was essentially quantitatively retained on mitotic chromatin um, whereas a bunch of other factors that we tested were not, again, in a graded fashion. So GATA was partially retained, GATA4, and, and so on. Some were not retained at all. And so uh, we thought, oh, wow, uh, Fox is going to be bookmarking all these transcription factor binding sites. And then we figured out how to do chromatin IP on that. And lo and behold, found that Fox was only occupying about 15% of its interface sites in mitosis. And we repeated that experiment many times and could not get it any better than 15%-ish. And so then we went back to our uh, mutants and we tested, uh, this was done by Juan Ma Caravaca when he was a postdoc in the lab. We tested a specific binding mutant and a non-specific binding mutant. And a specific, a mutant for specific DNA binding, FOXA fused to, to GFP, remained bound to the chromatin quantitatively in mitosis. And the mutant uh, for nonspecific binding was blown off the chromatin. And so basically what we think is that the strong binding of FOX is due to nonspecific binding in mitosis, most of it, uh, not at its target sites, but just sort of, again, going on and off, if you will, and, and coursing around the chromatin. And the hypothesis is that rather than truly bookmarking many, many of its sites, it's actually on the chromatin first as the, as the genome begins to unfold uh, as you exit mitosis and could get first access, if you will, to the chromatin. And then uh, other factors obviously were, again, in a, in a range of that. So that, that it's, it's sort of a modified version of, if you will, of what, um, it's not really quite, book, it's bookmarking in the sense of marking the whole chromosomes, but not necessarily a strong role for the binding sites. And then we did another experiment, Kate Palazzola in the lab looked at transcription and we had hypothesized, well, maybe that 15% of genes will be the first genes to come on during mitotic exit. And uh, again, because of nuclear envelope breakdown, you can't do the conventional isolate nuclei and run on or grow seek type techniques, at least back then. So we figured out a way 
uh, she figured out a way to use ethinylurethane to pulse label cells. And long story short there, we found out that the earliest genes to activate were not necessarily the FOXA um, bound genes as you exit mitosis, but in fact, uh, genes for basic cell function, um, such as you know rebuilding the membranes in the cell and organelles and this and that. And then we sort of thought about it and said, yeah, I guess the cell's still growing as you exit mitosis, you still have to make a second cell. And so uh, the cell's more concerned about just making fundamental components than it is about tissue specificity. So that's another example of getting an unexpected result. We completely expected to see, oh, liver specificity would be preserved first. And that's not what we observed, but it's still interesting. So did you track um, Foxay during the whole mitosis? Uh, I didn't quite get that. So did you see it during mitosis the whole time? Did you stay in uh, mitotic chromosome or did you then do chip just when they exit mitosis? Um, yeah, at the time we did, uh, we only, uh, we stained Fox at various mitotic exit points and it remains on chromatin, no doubt, but, um, or that's what we observed. Uh, we, we only did chip in uh, mitotic versus interface cells. Uh, we didn't do chip sequentially in mitosis. As I've said, it's, it's uh, incredibly hard to work with mitotic cells or artifacts about fix with fixation. And if you uh, block the cells with nicotazole uh, and then release them, you don't get a synchronous release. Uh, you get you know, the first cells to exit moving on and some cells are slower. So experimentally, it's not. Uh, an ideal system. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. And um, the first one is, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end or maybe did not know exactly how to proceed uh, to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so my, my lab has always inhabited multiple worlds. We do developmental biology and embryo embryology, we do genomics, and we do protein biochemistry. And I think if you don't do protein biochemistry, you won't appreciate what I'm saying. <laughs> But there are some proteins that we have tried to make and really beat our heads against the wall trying to make recombinant proteins. It was insoluble, it didn't fold well. And uh, so there were some proteins that took us a year or more to make. And, you know, there were times we thought we would give up. But, you know, people talk to people, get tips and stuff. So again, if you're, if you're not in the world of biochemistry, you may not appreciate that. But if you are, I think you'll know what I'm talking about. So there were multiple times through our protein purifications that uh, we just hit walls and, you know, you just keep trying to be creative and overcome that. And the amazing thing about biochemistry like that is you spend a year or two, let's say, getting a rack of proteins. And then in two weeks, you do the experiments that <laughs> are the foundation of your next paper. Yeah, that's that I can relate to that. Definitely. Yeah. So in the last, last uh, 35 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Uh, can you maybe give a short summary about your most important finding or what you consider your most important finding or something that we might have missed in this interview? Uh, no, I think, first of all, I'd like to say thank you. You did a really nice job looking up our papers and <laughs> understanding our work. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, I've been very pleased to trip upon and and. Uh, with my amazing lab group, I've wonderful. I've always had great people in the lab, which I really appreciate, and we've always worked as a team. Um, you know, thinking deeply, if you will, about self-fate control, and just trying to keep our eyes open to clues and focusing on 
uh, embryology as the basis for trying to understand the components. And uh, that's really what led us to the discoveries of pioneer factors. And then eventually, you know, coming back to embryology and testing the biochemical hypotheses, which we finally did in a paper we published this year in Nature Genetics. So I, I think just the idea that uh, we can understand the steps of enhancer activation from the very beginning, a naive enhancer embedded in chromatin, where does, where does it begin to get some new identity of expression in embryonic development? And we think the pioneer factors initiate that. They don't work alone. There's collaborators that come in, they recruit nucleosome remodelers. It's absolutely clear that at this point, they don't do everything, but they get the ball rolling. And uh, we're just very pleased to have played a part in, in understanding that. So I just uh, thought of another question because you were mentioning that. So when you start at the beginning, there is not much heterochromatin around, right? I mean, when you start develop, de the developmental process, then there is not much chromatin, uh, heterochromatin around. This is what I wanted to say. So the initiation of differentiation might be different than what they have to act on later on if you um, imagine that there is heterochromatin around. Is that true? Or well, I think... Let's take a step back. I mean, so ENCODE uh, has done a lot of mapping in many, many different cell types. And they actually claim that the most frequent chromatin state across the genome is not what you would call heterochromatin in terms of in marked by H3K9 trimethyl or polycomb uh, and is not open chromatin, but it's just sort of unmarked or um, low signal chromatin that's bound by H1, it's transcriptionally silent. And uh, that's where a, a lot of the genes are sitting in a given cell type. And that's exactly what we were modeling when we made those nucleosome arrays with H1. Uh, and uh, so I think at any point in development, uh, pioneer factors acting on low signal state chromatin is, is gonna be a viable uh, model. Um, that being said, Again, we were very surprised. Last year, Dario Nicetto in my lab published a paper in Science where we were looking at um, H3K9 trimethyl heterochromatin compacted K9 domains in embryonic development. And lo and behold, he found that the uh, post-gastrulation, the endoderm and mesoderm, had more K9 trimethyl domains than earlier states that was discovered by some other group, which you might be referring to as low heterochromatin, and later states in differentiation. So to our surprise, there's actually more heterochromatin on the genome in the undifferentiated endoderm and mesoderm, and, and that's the playground, if you will, where the pioneer factors and the pre-patterning that we were originally talking about um, uh, is, is happening. So uh, I, I think that There, it's hard to put fast rules of, you know, there's heterochromatin then and not now. I think there's, there's always elements of this around, and the question is, where is it put? And I should finish by saying my lab is really focusing on heterochromatin now because we think that that's what demarcates, if you will, or limits cell type conversions. Uh, that's what demarcates one cell type from another. You keep the genes put away that you don't want readily accessed. So, yeah, we are looking forward to, to reading those uh, studies. And thank you, Ken, for your time and for being on the show. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Um, best regards. This was the 34th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. 
We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotive.com. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motive blog, Motivations, at activemotive.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.